Brent, I, maybe I was supposed to have you in December. I don't know. Or you're 11 months early. Come on up here. He is from uh, Paducah, Kentucky. He's a graduate of International Bible College. He's presently working on his doctorate, and uh, he's a, uh, a chaplain in a hospital, and, and uh, this is a wonderful guy. He comes from a long line of ministry people, your grandfather, Brother Paul Worley, and those dear, precious people. And so he's been surrounded by ministry all of his life. You were born in the fire. Amen. And uh, anyhow, we're so thrilled to have Brent with us this morning. Going to share the word of the Lord. Open your hearts. And uh, thank you, Brent, for being with us here today. Take your liberty, brother. All right. All right. If I'd have known Santa Claus was coming, I'd have wore a different suit. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you know that uh, this world is not our home? Can you say that this morning? This world is not my home. One more time. This world is not my home. And aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that this world and all of the good that it might offer us is not it? That there's something better, that the better is still yet to come. Amen? Amen. This is not our home. This is not our home. The Lord has set eternity in our hearts. God has set eternity in each one of our hearts. And so that's why this world does not and will never satisfy. It will never satisfy because God has put in us a shape that is only can be filled by the shape of eternity, by the shape of God. Amen. Lord of the Lord and pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for who you are, for what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we've come to worship you, Lord. You are the reason why we're here. You're the reason, the whole reason why we gather and why we have new life. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for you for who you are, for what you've done for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. Now we ask you, Almighty God, to continue to speak to us as you already have up to this point in the worship service, Lord, and thank you for all of that. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit has to say to the church, that we would hear you, that we would hear your word, Lord, and that we would set everything else aside that may distract us from that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us to this place to hear your word. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, that it would be pleasing to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, amen. Well, life had had thrown us another curve ball. Life always seems to be throwing us a curve ball, doesn't it? And my wife of 22 years, Holly, our two teenage children, they keep growing. There used to be little bitty kids, but now they're teenagers. We had, uh, life had thrown us a curveball a few months ago. Uh, everything, not everything, but a lot of things were, were turned upside down. Uh, financially, things were turned upside down. Just a, a big shock. We just have those shocks in our life, and we say, what in the world is going on? What it, what is this about, Lord? And so that had happened. We had moved still in the Paducah, Kentucky area where I where I chaplain, uh, but we had moved to another house. And I was out that one morning walking our little dog. We had a toy Australian Shepherd, and so I was out walking him uh, in the in the morning. And I was just praying. And to be honest, I was just kind of reviewing life. We do that sometimes in our prayer time, don't we? We just kind of review life. It gives us petitions to bring. It gives us things to be thankful for. And I was just reviewing the events that had previously transpired a few months or so before that. And I'm walking our little dog, and I'm thinking every day we get up, we go to work, we go to school, We do whatever it is that our day typically holds. And while we know that every day is different, it sometimes feels like it's the same thing, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like it's the same 
thing. And so I'm rehearsing what has happened. I'm rehearsing life, and I'm thinking, so this is it, Lord. This is what life is about. We get up in the morning. We go to work. We do the things that, are, that fill our day uh, uh, commonly. We come home. We go to bed. We wake up. We do it again. And it's kind of the sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? We're sick, we're tired, and we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and it just, just all kind of hid in that moment. And I'm so glad that I have the Lord that I can take these things to in prayer and that he receives that. And I said to the Lord, Lord, what is the point? This is meaningless. And immediately I was transported back to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'd like to have you open there with me this morning. To the book of Ecclesiastes, where 38 times, I didn't think of that while I was praying, but 38 times Solomon, the preacher, the teacher, uses the word meaningless or vanity. And you don't have to be much of a Bible student, certainly not a Bible scholar, because that I am not, to understand that when we see a word or a theme used repeatedly in a book of the Bible, the author, the human author, and the author behind all of that, the power of the Holy Spirit, has a message that is being conveyed. And here I was in a down-and-out situation, feeling sorry for myself, Pity party, yes, I was doing all of that. You do it too, right? I was doing all of that. And the word, the very word, when I said, Lord, this just seems meaningless, transported me back to the scriptures. And I went in and I got my Bible and I opened to the book of Ecclesiastes and I began to read and I began to study and reread and re-study. And this is the message that God has put on my heart for the church and it's the message that I want to bring to us this morning. There are three points that I have for you and no poem. I never, I, actually, before I, before I got on my flight, I went to my office and I, I pulled out a little notebook where I keep uh, this, this size of paper, and it was the homiletic assignment that you had given us so many years ago to have a hundred or so illustrations and poems. I'm not a poem guy, but I do have three points for you, okay? And here's what they are. That there is suffering under the sun, number one. Suffering under the sun. Number two, satisfaction under the sun. And number three, satisfaction in sanctification. Suffering under the sun, satisfaction under the sun, and satisfaction in sanctification. Amen? We don't have to examine much of anything to know and to be reminded that life is hard. That life is hard. And I wonder if we could just admit that this morning, admit that to ourselves. That's the first one I think we have. The Lord knows that life is hard. Jesus said himself that in this world you will have tribulation. Somebody said last night, I thought maybe he was joking. No, in this world you will have tribulation. And sometimes as Christians, we have this mindset that we shouldn't have problems. That everything should be good and hunky-dory and we shouldn't have any issues. And, and if we do, we certainly shouldn't admit that. That is the kind of mentality that many Christians have. And so as we come here this morning and we're worshiping the Lord, I want to ask that we could all just admit to ourselves that life is hard. That that's okay that life is hard, that that's part of the intent, because the harder life is, the more dependence that we learn in Him. Yes, life is hard. And I know that I'm not alone in that. And you can know that you're not alone in that. And Solomon, if in fact it is the author, we're going to leave that conversation to the side. But Solomon also knew that life was hard. And in chapter 1, if, if, if you'll look there with me, if, if, 
If Solomon were writing a doctoral dissertation, chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11 would be his introduction. Let's look at his introduction. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has been already in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the things that are to come by those who will come after. And in verse 12, Solomon writes, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I sat in my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping at the wind. The whole world which God has designed is set on cycles. The wind goes and it comes back to where it returns. The rivers go and flow and is never full. Eye has, is never satisfied. Ears are never satisfied. The sun rises and the sun goes down every day. You wake up, you go to bed. You wake up, you go to work. You do whatever it is your day consists of, and it ends with going to bed. Even if you work a double shift or if you work midnight, your day begins and ends by waking up and going to bed. The sun rises, the sun goes down. The cycles of life, if you will, in, in, the, in the waters, in the winds, in the sun, and in every single generation, verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation Comes, but the earth abides forever, at least until the end, right? One generation, generation is gone. And another generation is there. And then that generation is gone. And another generation comes up. And that, that is our cycle. That is the cycle of, of life, if you will. That is the cycle of life as we understand it. Think about just grocery shopping and food, for example. You get paid, we get paid, we go shopping, we bring all the food home, we fill up the pantries and so on and so forth. You, your, your spouse, your children, our teenagers eat, it's, it's there and then it's gone. And they're looking in the cabinet saying, when are we going to, when are we going to go grocery shopping? When are we going to go, there's nothing, there's nothing here, well you already ate it all. But we, we get paid. We go shopping, we bring the groceries into the house, we eat it, and then the trash is piling up just in time for the trashed man to come and take it out and to cycle again. You can do that with any area of your life. It's all a cycle. And Solomon, the preacher, the teacher, says in verse 13 that I set in my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things done under heaven, this burdensome task, okay, life is hard, life is burdensome, this burdensome task that God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised or afflicted. Solomon understood, the preacher understood that life is hard. 
and he sought to seek these things out. And he looked at all of life, as we've seen in the introduction, and he says, what is this all about? It comes, it goes, it starts, it comes back. Look at chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. And I'm not going to read it all, but we're familiar with it enough. I, I trust that as soon as you see it, perhaps uh, set aside in your Bible as a poem, particularly verses 2 through 8, that there's a time, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance. And it goes on throughout the poem. There is a time for everything. And that's how he begins it in verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for a purpose, for every purpose under heaven. As you look at your life this morning, as I look at my life this morning and we see the things that we don't like, you can go look at this poem, this inspired uh, song, if you will, and we can say, I, I, I rejoice at birth, but I, but I don't like the, the death part. I, I like the planting, but I don't like the plucking up. And, and, and there's pros and cons. There's two sides of every coin. That's part of what, what we have here. And we can say, I like this part, but I don't like this part. I like this part, but I don't like this part. And when we look at our life and we think about suffering under the sun, Solomon talks about oppression, talks, talks about the great evils of this life, the great evils, and says it's all vanity and so on and so forth. As you look at your life and I look at my life, if we can in the midst of that suffering, whatever that may be, it might even just be mundane of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Might not be anything great and complicated other than ourself getting in the way in a pity party. But it might be really hard stuff as well. And if we could remember that in the midst of the suffering under the sun, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Stop there for just a moment. He made everything beautiful in its time. That is a hard pill to swallow. That he has made everything beautiful. Paducah, other, uh, among other things, is known as the home of the quilt museum and for some some reason unbeknownst to me people come from all over the united states and canada and probably other places to see quilts i've never been have no note but if you're a quilt person you probably know paducah kentucky to be the home of the quilt factory well here's one thing i know about quilts they're beautiful on the side that we see but they're ugly on the other side. You turn the, you look at the quilt, you look at the, the design and the beautiful tapestry and the artwork and things that I could never do. And it's beautiful. That's the picture that was being created. But if we only saw the backside of it where all the stitchings and all the tying and the knots, it, it's ugly. It's ugly. But you see, the text tells us that everything is beautiful in its time verse chapter 3 verse 1 a time for every purpose under heaven see we live under the sun and van gill a gift of god oh used to say in referring to ecclesiastes or referring to life in general that we are under the sun and this side of the grave under the sun that's the landscape and when we live and work under the sun and this side of the grave but Solomon says there's a time for every purpose under heaven. That's the part we don't see. We don't know what God is working. We don't know what God is weaving. And our discontentment and our dissatisfaction and all of the sufferings that may occur in our life, they're there for a time and a reason. 
And then the rest of verse 11, and he has put eternity in our hearts, except that no one can find out the work of God that he does from the beginning to the end. There's a lot of messages just right there, and this is just one, one part of one point. But God, we are created for eternity. We are mortals, but our souls are immortal. This body fades away. As a hospice chaplain for nine years, I see it every, literally every single day, multiple times a day. The body fades. The body gives out, regardless of age. Regardless of age. But there is a purpose, there is a, there is a plan, there is, there is suffering under the sun. But what about some satisfaction under the sun? Because isn't that, and I'm, I'm talking about believers. Maybe this applies to believers and unbelievers, but to let you know the heart and the intent is for us as believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that life is easy after that, does it? If you thought that, you thought wrong. And it's just like a lot of other things we got to learn to adjust. But life is not easy even for the believer. Sometimes more so for the believer because the enemy is working against us, right? But there, is there any satisfaction under the sun on this side of the grave? The preacher, the teacher in chapter 2 sets this out. And I'm not going to go into all of this, all of this detail. But he says in, in verse 16 of chapter 1, I communed with my heart saying, look, I attained greatness and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is all grasping at the wind. Again, vanity, grasping at the wind, meaningless. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Knowledge and wisdom will, might satisfy you for a time, but it will not satisfy you for eternity because God has established eternity in our heart and knowledge and wisdom isn't the shape to fill that. Knowledge and wisdom is, is important. It is good. In fact, in chapter 12, in verse 9, we see this very thing, and I always like to point this out ahead of time so we don't have anybody that says, oh, knowledge isn't important. Verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. And he goes on, but knowledge in and of itself, you can attain great knowledge. In chapter 12, right below where I already read, he says that there is great weariness in the writing of many books. Knowledge, you know, this is this international, formerly international Bible college, a place to prepare for ministry, where I did as well. The knowledge, particularly of the Word of God, is of utmost importance, but even after completion and getting more knowledge and more wisdom and more understanding, it doesn't satisfy. Degree after degree after degree, training after training, in your field, whatever it may be, it doesn't satisfy, does it? And you might wonder why. You might say to yourself, but I worked so hard for this. I endured such great painstaking events to finish this course, to complete this objective. But I'm not satisfied. Even as believers, we can look to good things to satisfy the aching soul, but it isn't enough. It isn't enough. Solomon, Solomon said in chapter 1, verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. My uncle, Pastor David Worley, uh, used to say, The more I know, the more I know I don't know. You just keep trying to chase more and more, and it doesn't fill. And everything in ch here in chapter 2 and even following, nothing satisfies. 
In chapter 2, we see verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this was all vanity. I said, in my, I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? Laughter, laughter, nothing wrong with laughter, is there? Not a thing wrong with laughter. And when you have been in a time like I was last night with some friends, when, when, when you have been in with friends and you have laughed and you have had all those endorphins and you've had a good belly gut laugh and you've, you're just like wanting to keep it, right? You're like, ah. Oh. Come on, some, some more laughter, some more fun, some more, and it ends. And it almost leaves us empty because it's like, but I need more of that. I need more of that. Nothing wrong with laughter. The same author says that laughter does like a medicine. But if you look to laughter or anything, pleasure, greatness, buildings, property, herds and shepherds, all of it listed and not listed, it will not satisfy. And believers are always looking for a way to cope with life when we even have the answer. We already know who, who helps us make it through life. But we look at these things and God gives us these things, but they don't satisfy. Wisdom, knowledge, mirth, wine, pleasure, greatness, so on and so forth. Solomon says it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all vanity of vanities. Not that it is completely worthless. That's how we would use the word. But it means vapor. And, and James uses the same idea that our life is but a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. And that's why nothing satisfies. Life interruptions come. You know that. I know that. They come and they do exactly that. They disrupt. They disrupt what we thought was normal what we had typically experienced previous to that. It's disruptive. It is suffering. There is oppression. There is great evils. And we look for things to satisfy, but yet, verse 8 of chapter 1, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It's never enough. It's never enough. But wait. But wait, surely there are something in this life that has value more than what meets the eye. If you're following along with me, I'm going to start with chapter 2, verse 24, and read various passages, or you can just listen, but I'll let you know where I'm going. Chapter 2, verse 24, these are sub-conclusions. They are not the conclusion of the matter, We'll get to that. But these are sub-conclusions throughout the book. Ecclesiastes 2, 24. Nothing is better for man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This I also saw was from the hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is a gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 22. So I perceived that nothing is better than a man should receive, rejoice in his own works. For this is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for no one to eat and for, for one, excuse me, it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God has given to him for his heritage. Verse 19, and for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat and to receive it his heritage, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. In chapter 8, verse 15, and I'll stop there, but I want us to get the sense of what Solomon keeps coming back to. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment 
Because a man has nothing better under the sun to eat and drink and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. It is not, it is not pre-Epicurean philosophy of eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, though everything in that statement is true. We eat and we drink and we should be merry, and tomorrow or some tomorrow we will die. But that, Epicu that, that Epicurean philosophy that came much later was a thankless, heartless, a giving up, a surrender. Well, I just eat, drink, and enjoy life and be merry because I'm going to die anyway. This is out of gratitude. Eat out of gratitude, for it is a gift of God. Drink out of gratitude, for it is a gift of God. God has given us burden called work, which is something our culture doesn't know anything about, apparently. Work. Work. We were created for work. You know that? It really bums some people out now. We were created. Six days you shall work. That means if you work five days and you get two days off, you have mercy. You should be working six days. Six, six days you shall work, and on the seventh, you'll rest. We were designed to work, and we should work to the glory of God, and we should enjoy the fruit of our labor. We should enjoy the work that we do. And from this, from this under-the-sun perspective only, it's something that you can get out of life. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your work. Enjoy what you provide for it, whatever that may be. But it doesn't matter what you do. It can become mundane. It can become burdensome. But if we enjoy what we're doing because of who has given it to us and who we're doing it for, there is reason to find contentment and satisfaction in eating and drinking and being merry. And, and how about chapter 5, sleeping? Chapter 5, verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. We wake up, we eat, we drink, we be merry, we sleep. There's value in these things. There's value in friendship. Look at chapter 4. Friendship is the whole reason why I'm in San Antonio again. Because the last time I was here, my best friend had died, and I was here for his funeral, Omar Amungo. And I said, and some of us said, we, I don't want to just do life and seeing my friends at funerals. I want to enjoy the gift of God of friendship. Look at it, chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one, would, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The value in friendship, but it's not eternal. I had a very close friendship with Omar. When I was up, he might be down, and I could come along and build him up. And when I was down and he was up, same thing. Beautiful. Anyone who was friends with Omar was beautiful. But he died. It's not eternal. Friendship and relationships do not fill that void that can only be filled by God. God has established eternity in our hearts. And though friendship is a gift of God, it does not satisfy completely. He even says this of marriage in chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9 and I have to laugh because I laugh every time I, I read it. You'll, you might laugh as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. He tells us to find satisfaction in our, in our wife, in our spouse. He says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. 
which he has given under the sun. All your days is vanity, for that is the portion in life and in the labor in which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Enjoy your vain life with your wife. Relationships are valuable and they, and they are meaningful. And I'm sure that you feel the same and believe the same. But they don't satisfy. We have an eternity set in our heart and the only thing that fills it is eternity. It's, it's like the little toy. The, the plastic toy, they have all the shapes. It's, a, it's octagon, right? And on one side, you've got, you've got squares and, and triangles and rectangles and circles and, and all these different shapes, and you've got these pieces. You can try to put the triangle in the circle all you want, but it's not going to go in. You can put the rectangle in the triangle as much as you want, but it's not going to go in that plastic cage. It's the shape of our heart with eternity, and nothing in this life satisfies to the uttermost except eternity itself. So what are we to do then? What are we to do then while we await for eternity in this life? What are we to do? Turn to the last chapter. The whole duty of man, the whole thing that we are to do he reaches his conclusion, and I call it satisfaction in sanctification, because everything here has to do with our life in sanctification. Chapter 12, I'm going to start with verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And, the, and further, my son, be admonished by these of making of many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. After all is said and done, this is the conclusion of the matter. Number one, fear God. Fear God. And I believe both definitions are fitting. Number one, be afraid. I worry sometimes, by the way, when I see people and Christians flippantly treat their relationship with God as if it was a human relationship. Say, but I'm a child of God. Yeah, but he's God. But he's God and you're not. I'm not. He's holy. He is holy. He is completely other. And sometimes we, we, we hold ourselves in contempt in our relationship with God because we don't fear him. A healthy fear, brothers and sisters, a healthy fear of God. Number two, worship him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we worship God, we will be satisfied. John Piper said, I am most satisfied when He is most glorified. I am most satisfied when He is most glorified. That simply means that if I spend my time worshiping God, praising God, fearing God, loving God, putting him first in my life, and he is glorified, then as a believer, I should be most satisfied. 
I might be looking to other good things in life to make me happier or content to help me through the cycle of life. And we each and every time we find out it doesn't satisfy because God has set eternity in our hearts. He says, fear God, and each one of these is a message in and of its own. Fear God and obey his commandments. Obey his commandments. I heard a preacher on the radio this week say, that means that when you are a child of God, you say, I don't know everything that this book says about me and my life and how it's going to apply, but I am devoted to obey it. Because we're always learning, we're always adding knowledge, we're always adding understanding, we're always adding wisdom, and we're always learning more. And when we find something in the Bible that speaks to us in the moment, we can't say, oh, I don't like that. No, no, I'm not going to. Surely that's a contextual issue. That doesn't apply to me. We have to commit ourselves to obeying his word. Not out of fear that we won't deserve him we don't deserve him it is all mercy and grace to begin with but fear God obey his commandments for this is man's all verse 14 for God will bring every work into judgment so number number three live with eternity in view fear God obey his commandments And let us live with eternity in view. Every day of our life, every moment of our life, living with eternity. The preacher, the teacher has much to say about eternity. He has much to say in this great 12 chapter book on judgment. Live our lives as believers with eternity and judgment in mind. Number four, turn to chapter five, if you will. Draw near to the house of God. Draw near to the house of God. Just chapter five, verse one. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools, for they do not know, for they do not know that they do evil. When you draw near, Jesus says, when you pray, when you fast, when you, when you, when you, he's not even commanding to do it. He says, when you do it, this is how you do it. Here he says, draw near to the house of God and draw near to here. Can we go back to chapter 12? I am. Verse 9, and moreover, Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. And yes, pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. What was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. The preacher prepares for you to hear. We draw near to that we fear God, we obey his commandments, we live with eternity in view. We draw near to the house of God to hear the word of God preached. The man who has been studying and praying for you. The under-shepherd who has been preparing the message for you. But when people don't come, they don't get that word. If you don't come, if you don't draw near to the house of God, then you're not hearing the message that God has for you. Fear God. Obey his commandments. Live with eternity in view. Draw near to the house of God or go and hear. Go and hear. In chapter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he talks about prayer. And it all comes down to the same things that every believer every time must do. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves steadfastly to the word of God, to prayer, to the communion of the saints, and the breaking of bread. These are the things that give us satisfaction under the sun in this life. So believers this morning, I ask you, where are you finding, where are you looking for your satisfaction? We can say it's in Christ, but not really look for it in Christ. Nothing else is going to satisfy. Nothing else is going to satisfy but God and his word. And this is why we've come. And these things must be stapled in our lives or we will falter. They are staples in our lives. And so we must eat of him and we must drink of him and we must be nourished by him so that we are satisfied in this life. And when we are satisfied, he is most glorified. When he is glorified, we are most satisfied. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that when we have suffering under the sun, that we have complete satisfaction in you, that all that we can have now before eternity. Help us to feast upon you, Lord Jesus. Help us to, to eat and drink and to be hungry and thirsty. Give us our appetite to eat of you and to drink of you and to be filled by you, Lord Jesus. The things of the world, even good things of the world that you have provided by that very hand of God do not satisfy us, Lord Jesus, because we always come back to being dependent upon you for all things. Father, I praise you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother David, I'm going to turn it over to you. Hallelujah. I'll let you close it. Your... Hallelujah. What a great word for the first month of this new year. 38 times, vanity, vanity, empty. I remember some years ago, Brent, I was reading Ecclesiastes, and I said, man, this guy's negative. He said, everything under the sun is empty, vanity, vexation of spirit. And I was praying, and the Lord said, the problem was, he was looking at everything under the sun. And you put your finger on it. We live life with eternity in view. So enjoy your family. Enjoy your marriage. <laughs> I thought that was kind of humorous about your wife, <laughs> your vain wife. <laughs> no, no, enjoy your marriage. Don't fight through marriage. Life is short, folks. Don't, don't go through life fussing and fighting. I remember I told Jeannie when we first got married, I said, you know, because my parents had conflict ultimately ended in divorce I told her I said I'm not going to live life constant fussing and fighting conflict I'm the boss <laughs> and the war started <laughs> God gave me a wonderful wife but life is a cycle. Oh, I love those, the admonition. Fear God. Have a wholesome, he's not your buddy. He's our God. But he's the greatest friend I've ever had. I could talk to him about anything. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Oh, obey his commandments. Live life with eternity in view. Don't just chase the wind and 
live from one meal to the next and one day to the next. Live with eternity in view. You're here for a purpose. God has a reason and a, a purpose for your existence and you're going to dwell with him forever. Oh my goodness. Are you living life with eternity in view? Why don't we just decide right here today I'm going to commit myself this year to live more with eternity in view. That every day as I face every day it's with eternity in view. Think eternal. Think eternal. Hmm. How many of you say amen? Now Lord help us this year. Help us to live with eternity in view. To worship you. To adore you and walk with you. And help us to live with eternity in view. Hallelujah. I want our ushers to get a couple of offering plates. I want us to bless Brent. And uh, I thank God for this man of God. Now, you know, when he talks about how life is a cycle and we all get older, now you guys aren't going to believe it. See, I've known Brent since he was a little boy. He had a full head of red hair. I look at that gray beard and I'm wondering where in heaven's name he got that thing. How many of you believe he's a, he was a red-headed kid? You don't believe Brent, you're going to have to show a picture to some people today. But uh, how many of you are thankful for life, the goodness of God? And, uh, you know, I've decided I'm not just going to live life under the sun. I want to connect with eternity. That's his purpose. To do his will. Amen. So let's bless the servant of God today and, and let us decide and make up our minds we're going to live with eternity in view this year. Can you say amen? Let's stand and be dismissed. God bless your people. Put your hand upon them. Help us, Lord, to live with eternity in view. Not just to live life under the sun, but to live in light of the God that's in charge of above the sun and what we're really headed for. So bless your people, I pray today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Amen.